So, Lenora, thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Bookable Space. Oh, happy to be here, Yvonne. Thanks for inviting me. Anytime. Absolutely anytime. So let's just dive right in. Where did the idea for Water Woman come from? Well, it actually goes back to when I was in graduate school and I was getting my MFA in creative writing. And uh, prior to going there, I had published a couple of books in the more like a supernatural genre. And I had kind of switched over to mainstream writing. And I'd been funneling all the stories that I already had through my writing workshops there. And suddenly in my last semester, I ran out of stories, no more stories in the trunk. <laughs> so I had to, suddenly it's like, ah, oh, to write something new, you know, and I don't have much time. And I was the mother of a five-year-old and I was also teaching uh, university classes, a couple of classes. And so I was really frantic. And so what I did was I thought, well, I want to read something about the Eastern shore because I lived here by then for about, oh, seven years. And I felt like I was ready to write about it, you know, and I wanted to do something historical because I like to write historical things and I like to kind of pre- help preserve history in that way. But I had to like no time. So I thought, well, I'll just have to do something really fast. And I decided to spend a three-day weekend at one of my writing students' houses. She invited me to come and write something and just, just write for three days. And that was like an amazing offer. So that's what I did. And I, I just went and, you know, planning to do that. She made me food and gave me wine. And if I needed a book from the library, she went and got it. And I just started writing the story. And I was so rushed and so pressed for time that all I knew in my head was I had this idea about writing a story about two sisters, two elderly sisters who live in a house on an island here. And, and they live there all alone. And, uh, you know, I didn't know why, but a man had something to do with it. And I just started writing with that, which wasn't much. And it was very strange. This has not happened with any of my other books, but the story just sort of came to me like somebody was, you know, kind of telling it to me as I started typing. I know people say that and I always think, but, you know, it actually did kind of happen that way. And I started writing and the voice of Annie, the main character, who's 19 and then 20, who becomes a waterman in the story, you know, when she's in 1920, um, I could hear her voice and it was very clear to me. And so my my student, you know, friend brought me some books when I needed some information on, you know, the waterman life or how, you know, crab traps are set or whatever would bring me those. And I'd use those, but otherwise I just kept writing for like 10 or 12 hours a day. And by the end of the three days, I had a hundred pages, which was not quite a novel, but it was enough to get me through my classes. And it was this great story, which I, I then later after graduation and I expanded it and then I expanded it again. And then it was bought by Putnam. That was the second, uh, second person. I think my agent showed it to. So that was really, that was, is usually not that easy. <laughs> that was like an easy, like everybody should have at least one of those, I guess. <laughs> Usually it's harder. It's all harder, but it was kind of one of those stories that's like a gift or, you know, that kind of comes down. And I don't think that happens very often. So I feel lucky that it happened once, you know, and I was very interested in that time period too. But, you know, mainly it was just that I, I, I was in this big rush and had these few ideas and they somehow miraculously all came together and made that story, you know, all set at that time period when it was, you know, the roaring twenties in the rest of the country, but a very quiet time here still because the eastern shore was and still is pretty isolated i love that and and my goodness what a wonderful offer from your friend to you know to create that sort of writing time and space and to be you know so like yeah i'll go get you the books and i'll give you you know make you food and, and what a just pleasant like wonderful time and then to have this wonderful book come out of it 
Oh, it was. I feel I feel very fortunate. Um, I dedicated the book to her. In fact, it was actually it's kind of a sad ending to that story because shortly before the book came out, she was um, killed by a drunk driver. Um, so that I dedicated the book to her. You know, I was going to do it anyhow, but it, now it was in memoriam instead of you know in honor of. And so that's that's the one sad thing connected with that. But um, yeah, it, it it was just the most generous offer from her. And plus, she was a great cook. I mean, amazing food, you know, and she's like, here's a glass of wine, just keep typing, you know, and she would give me things. So it, it, I, I don't think that you could ever get, I don't know how you could get a more perfect setting for that. I mean, it was only for three days. Like I said, I mean, a week of that would be amazing. But but for the three days, I don't think I've ever turned out that many words a day, you know, just typing and typing at one time. So wow. it was great. Wow, wonderful. And could we hear a reading, please? Certainly. Um, I think what I'll do is I'm going to read um, a few sections from the opening. And this is the very beginning. And this is uh, chapter one, the opening of Water Woman. We always had our differences, my sister and I, but I never meant to hurt her. I surely never wished her dead. Though sometimes on the nights when I'm sitting up late by her bedside, I do wonder, because in 20 years of living, I believe I received more than one omen of where love, hate, and rivalry has finally taken us now that we're both grown women. For instance, that fall day in 1906 when she was three and I was seven, dad had roused us early in the yellow-gray light before dawn. He clumsily bundled us up as we yawned and complained, stuffed cold biscuits in our hands, and put us aboard his workboat, an old bar cat with a green sail. Your man's sickly today, he told us, needs a rest, so you squits will have to come along with me, God help us. I've never before in my life heard him use a curse word or take the Lord's name in vain, but I was too thrilled to be shocked. Oh, yes, I shouted. Yes, please, Dad. Rebecca only squealed and hopped around. I was sure she was too young to grasp the rare privilege of finally being allowed what I assumed all little girls dreamed of, to ride along on dad's work, to sit in the stern wearing a cap like a real waterman. But we hadn't gotten far, only to the channel between our island and the next. When I turned to see my sister's red coat, her wool leggings, her patent shoes disappearing over the side. She dropped without a sound. The vanishing clothes were so unexpected a sight, but which moment passed before I recalled Rebecca was inside them and that she couldn't swim a lick. I looked quick to my father to see what he'd do about it. He was fiddling with the sail, his back to us, and hadn't seen. For yet another moment, I couldn't speak. I couldn't even recall Rebecca's name or my own. All I could think to do was scream. Dad dropped his line and turned to look. What, Annie? He said. Sharp-edged worry creased his forehead. All I could manage to gasp out was, Becca, as I pointed to the water behind us. Back in our wake, an arm flailed, a last billow of bright red material. He came about sharp, and in a moment, we were at the spot where she'd vanished. He rushed to one side of the boat, then the other, looking down. I leaned over the stern and saw her there, a foot below the surface, face turned up to the sky, eyes open. She hung suspended in the water, trailing a string of bubbles like oversized pearls, hair a dark cloud around her face, as graceful as one of the water sprites in my fairy book. Beyond her lay the dull moon rubble of an old oyster bed. To me, it looked as if Rebecca were rising to the surface, coming to me, not falling away, a mermaid about to be born. 
My father shoved me out of the way, pushed the tiller over to head us into the wind and jumped in. He came up with my sister clutched in one arm and hauled himself into the boat with the other. Later on the thwarts and turned her head and did things to help her cough up water. At last he sat her up and wrapped her shivering body in his oilskin jacket. Then he spanked me. I understood why. It would have done no good to say I hadn't seen it happen. That the, the first I'd known of her fall was the sight of her shoes disappearing suddenly over the side, any more than it would have helped to lie and claim I hadn't seen a thing. At seven, with ma'am sick all the time, I had long since understood that my sister was my responsibility. I endured the punishment without crying. Anyway, dad generally had a lighter hand than ma'am. Then he made me sit beside my sister. You mustn't let go of her, maid, not ever. She's not got the sense to take care of herself yet. I wouldn't look at him, but I nodded. You swear it now. <sighs> yes, Dad. He seemed satisfied then and went back to the tiller. Rebecca leaned into me and stopped sobbing long enough to glance up. Dark lashes clumped and spiky with tears and salt water. Me wet, Annie, she said, plucking at her sodden clothes. She shivered again. I waited until my father turned away to hoist the sail before I risked giving her arm a light pinch. I frowned down at her, then made a big point of looking away. Dad came about directly and headed home again. He squinted into the risen sun and muttered something like, men blasted nets on such a God-given day. Rebecca pressed closer and took my hand. And when I felt hers curl like a small cold starfish around mine, I relented and hugged her tight against me, astonished at how easily she'd almost been lost. But still, I felt aggrieved. Her weight seemed to settle on my shoulders like dropped anchor chain. How long would it be before she had enough good sense? It seemed hard that, until then, I was always supposed to look out for her. Wow. Quite the opening, isn't it? Yeah, I just jump right into that sibling rivalry stuff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I'm really curious about, you know how I feel like everybody has these time periods that they like. And for me, I know a lot of people are fascinated about the 20s. For me, it's um really specifically 1919. And it's because... Um, the most incredible person that I have ever known has been my grandmother and she was born in 1919. And so there's something about that time period that I'm like, wow, it was able to produce this, you know, this loving powerhouse over, of, of a woman. And so I'm really curious for you, what does the 1920s make possible in terms of the setting, the tension and the overall story that you wanted to tell? Well, I think I, I kind of fished around for a while about what period exactly I wanted to choose. I mean, here on the shore, things changed much more slowly. They were still using sailboats to fish, you know, things like that long before other places, they were not doing that because there were shallow waters and it was easy to use them. And, and then I thought about it and I thought, well, okay, if I make it, you know, in the early 1900s, I'll have to deal with world war one. I. I didn't really want to make it a war novel. And if I do it later, you know, in the like late thirties, early forties, I have to deal with world war two. And I didn't want to do that. And then I thought, well, anyway, the 20s were a fascinating time, or 1920 specifically, um, because, you know, it, it was after a war, it was maybe one of the first wars where people thought, well, this isn't such so great, you know, it's not as glorious as we thought. And then on top of that war, right, right on the heels of that war comes, you know, the Spanish flu, sort of like what we've suffered with COVID now only, of course, much, I guess, much worse. Um, you know, they didn't have any kind of, you know, their, their medicine, medication and hospitalization, things like that it was, I mean, people were just dying from that. And they hear they had not even gotten over the war and the deaths from that. And here they launch right into a pandemic, basically, a terrible one. And yet, 
we're all so resilient that, you know, in the twenties, we're bouncing back from that and everybody was kind of recovering. But at the same time, I think there was this feeling that, well, what have we got to lose? You know, kind of the, mm-hmm. you know, the roaring twenties, that whole attitude. But at the same time where I was setting my story, not much of that, I think filtered down here. I, I, there were speakeasies, you know, and, you know, and little juke joints and things, but it wasn't like say New York city or even the surrounding outside park, a very rural area with farmers and fishermen. So as I said, things changed much more slowly, but that fascinated me too, that it's kind of like a microcosm of history, you know, long before that, that it, the history for them is still like the contemporary time. So I wanted to look at that too. How fascinating. Could we have another reading, please? Sure. So this is chapter two. I'm going to skip to that. Um, and it's the day that Annie discovers what it's like to have a baby sister, you know, and what, you know, all of this is kind of foreshadowing what's going to happen later when it ends, she ends up being having to become the head of the family. Chapter two. I just turned four the day my baby sister arrived, and she was a big surprise to me. People didn't talk to children about having babies, so my mother's growing stomach hadn't meant a thing. There'd been a boy baby 12 years before ma'am birthed me, but he was sickly from the get-go. So one morning before the fragile might had even learned to walk, they'd found him cold and blue in his crib. The first I knew about Rebecca began with a fast sail in the early dawn to the eastern shore town of Wachapree. Me, grumbling and cold and put out, I had to leave my bed so early and no breakfast to boot. Ma'am had sat beside me in dad's oyster boat, hunched over on the seat, moaning as if something was hurting her. But I was only a child, selfish as the young can be, and all I could think of was the injustice done me. A horse and wagon took ma'am away at the dock. Dad walked me over to eat at a little clappered place with oilcloth-covered tables and short, ruffled calico curtains, and a huge woman in a flowered dress and apron who put our steaming plates of salt-cured ham and fried eggs silently on the table and then disappeared into the back. It was my first restaurant meal, but the thrill was lost on me as I twisted in my seat, craning my neck to take the place in. Who is that woman? Why do they need five tables to eat? I asked Dad. Where are all her children? How many does she have? He wasn't eating his fried ham, just sipping coffee and looking worried. Never you mind, Annie, he said. It's your mother gone to Canaan is all, and the midwife's fee high as quinine. What a time to drop one. Look at the wind change now. Weather's going to haul about sundown. It'll be a tickly bender crossing the water to carry us all home. I frowned into my scrambled eggs. Ma'am's gone where? Suddenly, a terrible notion seized me, and I burst into tears. She's going to die like old Tab? I'd found our elderly orange cat stiff and still under the porch the week before. Ma'am had told me old Tab had worked hard and done her duty well with the mice, and so now she'd gone to glory. I had an idea that Canaan might be the same place. What? No, she's not gone, Dad said. See, Annie, a baby, it's... He stopped abruptly, his face gone right red. Just gone off a little while is all to get you a surprise. You'll see, by me by. Hours later, I sat outside, wrapped in a spare sail, nodding off in our boat. I heard voices and opened my eyes to look up. My father smiled down at me as he handed a shaky-looking ma'am carefully off the pier and onto the the cat boat's bobbing deck. Well, now, what do you think of your new sister, Miss Annie Revels? I didn't ask for no baby. I scowled at the wrinkled, red, squalling thing ma'am held out to show me. My mother looked more thin and tired than usual, her cheeks ghost hollow. But sister's better than anything, she said. My father nodded and spat over the side. I may have, but we still could use a son. I wasn't convinced either. Send it back to the store. I'd rather have a new kitten. 
But to my annoyance, neither of my parents took to that proposal, and baby Rebecca rode in a clothes basket in dad's oyster boat all the way home from the mainland. The weather, as it often does on the shore, had changed yet again. We had a calm trip back to Yalpin Island. But when uh, they return, her mother is, is quite ill and doesn't recover from the birth. And we would know now that would be um, postpartum depression along with some other complications. But that wasn't really known then. You know, they didn't really know that. So she's so ill that the father goes off to bring the grandmother home. Dad went off in the boat and came back with Granny Jester. She visited twice before, spoiling me rotten with a bag of crisp sugar cookies and a new tin pail and shovel. Granny looked like an older version of ma'am. She wore the same thin silver ringed spectacles and her hair was still as black as a stripe on a gull's wing. She came in the door and looked first at baby Rebecca wrapped like a batch of fresh biscuits in a clean tea towel. Well, ain't you gussed up, said Granny, laughing as she peered down at Rebecca's wide blue eyes and pink pursed mouth, her waving tiny fist that poked up from the towel. The first thing Granny did was gather a big load of wash so the baby could have a proper blanket, one of my old ones. My father had also brought us a new gasoline-powered ringer washer right in the boat along with Granny. He lugged it out back to the shed, puffing and panting, making a big production of setting the thing up, shaking his head and clanging a lot of metal tools, but looking proud afterward when he turned it on. What a racket, I shouted, holding my ears as he showed off its features. No one else hereabouts but for the hotel over to Cobbs Island has an automatic washer, Annie, he shouted. You should be grateful. I thought about that for a while, but still couldn't see why. Our house used to be quiet, except when I'd played cowboys and Indians or hopscotch and set out to make noise. Now there were not one but two noisy additions I'd never wanted or asked for. <laughs> As the youngest of a family, it amuses me. <laughs> and that newfangled technology was a lot noisier back then. We've got the quiet stuff now. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. So that really w leads really nicely into my, my last question, which is about the research. What sort of research did you do for the book? And then because I'm only telling myself I can only ask three questions, I'm putting this one together. So <laughs> what sort of research and what's something that you've learned um, throughout your research that was really interesting to you, but did not make its way into Water Woman? Well, I, um, I did research the way I often do is just um, going back to look for sources, um, sometimes original sources, if I could find them, like journals that, you know, women had written. And so at our historical society and our library also has a great historical collection. I looked through that and I tried to find letters. I tried to look at things for things like newspaper pages of the advertisements of the sorts of things that would be for sale and look at little articles. They would tell like what was going on. Like, you know, there were no murders for years and years and years. I mean, not a lot of those kinds of things happening, which is nice, but you know, there, there's some big news was something when somebody came to visit, you know, and they detail how the whole family was there and talk about all the people and what they wore, you know? So that was in a place like this, it, that was big news, you know, not, not murders and all, you know, bank robberies and stuff like that. Those things were quite rare. Um, but I also looked at the advertisements to see what people, you know, what kind of clothing they would wear. And I would look at letters to see, you know, how they might have talked. Um, and I could listen to recordings. And I was very lucky to talk to one woman who was a child at the time, but she remembered a lot. She was in her 90s when I wrote the book. And so she could give me some ideas about what it was like. This was really valuable to live on one of the barrier islands, because that's what mm. this is taking place on a barrier island that I made up so that I could you know, do what I wanted with it. But all the other islands there, you know, everything else is geographically and historically correct. And she had lived on 
uh, Cobb Island, which was inhabited for quite a long time. It's owned by the Nature Conservancy now, but it, there, there were so many storms, hurricanes and nor'easters flooding them out and killing people and tearing up their houses. They finally moved to the mainland, but she still remembered a little bit about being a child there and what it was like. So that was really valuable for me to know what it would have been like to live, you know, out in that island, just stuck way out there in the water, you know, away from the mainland with nobody but you, your family, and a few other people. So that was one of the best things that I found. So I learned, I think I relearned it because I'd done it before, is that if you can get an original source, you know, like an oral history type source for something, that's the most valuable thing ever because not only can they tell you, you know, about what the thing was actually like, you know, firsthand, but you can ask them questions and, you know, things that you might not be able to find elsewhere. Oh, what a treasure trove. Could we have our final reading, please? Certainly. Granny Jester had told me she was there to help with the baby, but I decided she'd really come to play with me. After the housework was done, she took me for walks around the island. We picked up shells and sea glass, and she let me climb up in bed with her both morning and night. Then she read to me out of her big book of fairy stories kept on the wall shelf. Though I began to notice she sometimes changed the story's endings so that little girls who trod on a loaf or danced themselves nearly to death in red shoes or got eaten by wolves didn't perish at all. They only prayed and repented and became good children who always minded their manners instead of going footless ever after or being roped to a moldy old hunk of bread for eternity. And gradually, I began to resent Rebecca not so much. Her chubby little face grew less red and wrinkled. She even smiled at me from time to time. And when she did, I began to look at her with some affection. But ma'am didn't get much better. She was out of bed by then, at least. But she mostly sat around and stared out the front window, baby at her breast, waiting for dad to get home off the water. What was even stranger was that she seemed to have forgotten how to do the simplest things, like boil water for coffee or make my oatmeal the way I liked it in the mornings. So granny stayed on. And after a while, it seemed like she'd always been with us. And after a while more, the baby was crawling around and eating her oatmeal, too. But ma'am only seemed to get worse and worse. Okay, then one day she's there with her grandmother and the baby's crying. And she's, she's watching her and the, uh, come toward the bed as the grandmother is reading a story to her. And she wants the grandmother all to herself. So this is what happens. Rebecca reached up and grabbed the hem of the quilt in both chubby fists. I watched in alarm and dismay as she began to haul herself upright onto the bed. In a moment, she'd be right there with us and take Granny Jester for herself. I glanced at my grandmother, but she was reading on and still seemed not to have noticed. Carefully, I slid one leg across the sheet and from under the covers, gave Rebecca a nudge with my foot, a little push to make her get down. But it startled her because she let go of the covers all of a sudden and fell back, plopping down hard on her round diapered bottom, looking stunned. But then, just as quick, she wound over and her head hit the leg of the bedside table. Annie! I glanced away from my howling sister and up into Granny's shocked face. She was staring down, mouth open, as if she didn't even know me. Then she shoved me aside, got up, and gathered Rebecca to her, feeling along my sister's chubby little arms and legs for some injury. For all the fuss, I expected blood, but there was nothing. Yet Granny looked at me over the baby's head with narrowed eyes as if I tried to murder her. Cain slew Abel, she said in a pinched, hateful voice. I frowned because I didn't understand who those people were. Did I know them? Then I remembered she told me the Bible story the Sunday before, after I'd refused to sit next to Rebecca in the pew at church. Before I could explain what had happened, Gran leaned over and slapped my face so hard it stung. A selfish child brings misery to a house, she said. You're one of the blue hen's chickens, you are. May have to grow up selfish too, eh, girl? I should switch you seven ways from Sunday. 
She didn't do it, though. My father came in looking sleepy and rumpled. What's all the fuss now? And Granny only said, the baby fell down and bumped herself. But I knew she didn't look at me quite the same after that. For a long time, I'd reveled in being her favorite, Gran's girl. Now I felt sure she didn't act the same. I'd look up from my plate at supper to see her gazing on me in a sort of appraising way, as if wondering who on earth I really was. So I made an effort to be kind to my little sister after that, but it tried me sorely. She was the toddling age in which she would snatch up the few toys I had, drool and gum at them until they looked terrible. Worst of all was the suspicion Gran had gone and told ma'am on me after all. For now, it seemed to me that my mother spoke more sharply than she ever had before. If I took more than one cookie from the jar, didn't speak in a sweet tone to the baby. Yes, Gran had betrayed me, I decided, secretly turned my mother against me too. It was bitter to go from beloved princess to wicked girl all in a moment. Wow. I cannot wait to read more. So can you tell us where can we buy the book? Well, pretty much almost anywhere, I would say, but I mean, it's on Amazon, it's on Barnes and Noble and Indie Books. Um, It's also on our website, the website of the publisher, which is, and this is the revised, the new edition. And it's, uh, so it's www.northampton-house.com. But, you know, it's available in all the usual places. And I don't think it would be too difficult to find. Wonderful. Little oh, oh let me just ask you, there's an audio, there's an audio book I meant to mention. Mm. <laughs> I almost forgot that. That's new. Um, there's also an audio book version now. So if people are into that sort of thing, rather than reading it, they can listen and that's available on Audible. Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for reading and talking to us more about the book. It was a pleasure having you on. I really enjoyed it, Yvonne. Thanks so much for having me.